the subject for this evening's talk is the question of authority. I think it possibly becomes apparent to us that when we look into the field of religion, both old and contemporary, both East and West, North and South, we are exposed again and again to areas and issues of authority and the influence of various forms of authority upon our lives and the impact, both useful and skillful as they may be, and at times equally unuseful and unskillful. And we see too that <coughs> this area of authority and the relationship to authority and the way we relate to it often, but not always, has its relationship to the past, may have its bearing and influence on our formative years and that very easily in this uh, period of times of our life of adulthood we may copy or imitate or replay, as it were, the kind of uh, role models and the perceptions that we have, that we have had towards people in the past, and sometimes the most outstanding is one or other or those parents. And we see how easily in this world of religious life, which offers us something larger and greater than what is conventional, it can be very, very easy to be in such a position in life that one feels I don't know, I am not understanding, things are not clear to me, I have so little experience, so little authority in these particular matters. And there's an understandable wish and acceptance to embrace and accommodate another who for a whole variety of uh, reasons, accurate or imprecise, seems to know, seems to have the answer. And what we notice and experience in this uh, uh, relationship that takes place in the religious life, and I'm obviously not excluding events in this room, that what we notice and experience in this relationship is how easily it can be that we dismiss our wisdom, we dismiss our understanding, and we transfer it or deny it for the sake of an authority. Sometimes when we look we ask ourselves, what is authority? Where does authority come from? Where does spiritual authority come from? And in that we may certainly need to ask of the person with whom we have entered temporary maybe into such relationship what, what is the background what is the, the source of authority <coughs> and in that certainly one of the essential features of authority must be realisation what that person that teacher that uh, spiritual figure or whoever or however we may describe him her or I that it must be rooted and uh, expressed 
true spiritual realization. Therefore, it is not something ethereal or vague or abstract or cerebral or just clever and memorized from the uh, vast reservoir of religious books, but it comes directly out of insight, out of experience. This gives a person authority from his or her, in this case, my experience. But the religious tradition says it's very easy, and I think very wisely, and particularly in the, in the Buddhist tradition, to its uh, tremendous credit, has expressed great concern for thousands of years about just allowing, as it were, or enabling authority just and exclusively, important as it is, to come from one's realization, from one's experience. And the reason that it has expressed much caution about that alone is because not through any manipulation, not through any endeavor to control or uh, uh, run with power in any way, but a, a person, a human being, can err, can make mistakes, can deceive herself or himself, and genuinely believe she or he is realized, and that realization therefore carries the authority immediately to go with it. And one has to tread very, very carefully where there is that experiences or a range of experiences or ranges of insights and then one takes upon oneself the uh, role of knower, the role of uh, teacher, the role of missionary, the role of guru or whatever the, the form may be. So the tradition, the Buddhist tradition has said, I feel very wisely and appropriately, also authority also must be authorized elsewhere. And one of the things that the Buddhist tradition has uh, expressed again and again, and I notice in my life in uh, relationship with others as well, is that when receiving authority for, uh, some, for uh, teaching in this case, that receiving of authority is coming out of a tradition, one generation authorizing a new generation we might say. Sometimes, if I may just speak a little personally here, when I was in um, Thailand as a, a bhikkhu, my uh, teacher, uh, Tanajan Damodaro, who was my uh, vipassana teacher, and I spent with him a period of uh, three years uh, in, that, uh, in the monastery with him in the southern part of Thailand. And towards the end of that stay there, he uh, asked me, if I may say, asked me a number of times to uh, begin uh, teaching and to uh, follow in the line of uh, imparting spiritual practices and teachings. At that time, I felt uh, that I wasn't ready, I wasn't uh, willing to do that, and it wasn't in fact for a, about two years later or more that uh, I... Uh, entered, shall we say, into this role. In that, therefore, I say that sometimes that authority may come from another, from the tradition, and from that tradition to oneself, to ourself. But one also must have one's own authority as well. I say that not only with regard to spiritual life, but also with regard to other areas of your life and my life, 
where somebody says, you should do this, you are ready for this, and it's necessary to, as an imperative, to really deeply listen inside of ourselves and to really ask, what is one's state of preparation? And one would say, with authority and with the humility which is required with it, and a number of people in this hall in the course of your life will have positions of authority, that the uncanny thing about it is that often we, whatever the point that we start, or however we might express it, sometimes we never, ever feel ready. Realizations can be there, insights can be there, the authority of a two and a half thousand tradition can be there, all of that can be there, and there is some feeling inside that says, well, uh, not yet, not yet, not today, not this week, next month, next year, please. And then one may embark on the work of teaching, of uh, service, and I'm speaking, of course, spiritually, but also uh, in other fields as well. And in that, quite often, that there may be, for a period of time, the feeling of delight and pleasure which comes from that through the receiving of appreciation, the receiving of praise, the receiving of uh, a great deal of uh, affirmation and of course it's uh, co-assistant criticism um, blame uh, rejection and condemnation the two go together uh, uh, mutually supportive and in that receiving uh, which may come very easily that generally speaking, for a period of time, generally speaking, the positivity does seem to outweigh the negativity. After any period of time of engagement as an authority figure in human service, the glory, and and the blame too, hopefully, kind of wears off. You have a honeymoon period for a few months. One likes to be the centre of attention at 7.15 in the evening for 45 minutes and then it's 7.15 for 45 minutes and then it's in the morning and during the day and day in and day out and people will say and speaking um, personally of our situation here my goodness me you know I'm not going to be able to get through 10 days and tonight I'm supposed to make a decision whether I can survive 20 days on a retreat Have you any idea how many days I've spent in retreat? How many years over the last 24 years of of retreat? And sometimes one sees and really knows what sacrifice is all about, what letting go is all about, what doing without is is all about in order to be a consistent uh, servant of the Dharma in this case. So as I say, there is the authority of realization, there is the authority of the tradition and the teachers of the tradition, and there is also um, another important authority as well, and that is the authority that you have. And that authority should never ever be forgotten and never ever be neglected. Because that authority which you have is the authority which says, yes, this person who I am listening to, this man, this woman, in authority, she or he has that authority because I sanction it in the moment. I, I give that authority in the moment. I give that through my listening 
I give that through my meeting with this person and hearing what he or she or they have to say. I give it through speaking about my experiences and speaking about the deepest uh, sensitivities, pains and joys and realizations of my life. Therefore, I give authority. And that authority is something which we agree, you and I, and you and I in other situations, we agree together. When that is forgotten and neglected in life, in relationship to authority, important figures in our life, it's not an agreement. It easily becomes transference. And where there is that kind of unsatisfactory, painful transference for a human being, the authority figure is elevated even higher and higher, and then that gap becomes unbridgeable. Are we doing it with anybody, anywhere, in this world, in this life? Have we placed any human being on such a, a pedestal that we have made, created such a gap, whether this person is dead or alive, it's an irrelevancy, whether we've made such a gap between ourselves, a person who gives the authority and the one who has the authority, that this gap is unbridgeable. Because if this gap isn't bridged, enlightenment is never available. Never. It's never available as long as human beings see differences and gaps between each other. I wrote a, po wrote a poem. A poem on this, on this uh, too, one I'll read a little bit later if I may. And this one is called The Seeker. Very simple poem. They all are actually. I am in this religion, but its name eludes me. I am in this practice, but its form excludes me. I have found my teacher, but he lives in conceit. I surrender my will, but I worship his feet. I am in this tradition, but it knows no history. I'm in this faith, but it shares no mystery. I pray to the divine, but it does no good. I sit and meditate, but it's just dead wood. <laughs> I'm in touch with God, but he doesn't bear fruit. I fall on my knees, but that's not astute. I am left with aloneness. I am deprived of a clue. Who needs God or the devil? Do you? Sometimes, whether it's in poetry, uh, whether it's in reflection, whether it's looking into things and the movement of mind that takes place, sometimes, as I've mentioned in previous talks in this room, one needs an element of ruthlessness and that ruthlessness is such, and as the Buddha made as an imperative, as an authority figure, don't take anything because of tradition. Don't take anything on board because millions have agree with that particular book. Don't take anything on board just because an authority figure or a charismatic figure says it. He says, don't take anything on board because millions of people agree with it. 
don't take it on board just because it sounds reasonable and okay but check, check and check again through your experience let your authority let your experience be and with that experience to be watchful with experience what is the effect of the experience what do you conclude from an experience and sometimes in the religious life people have had wonderful and do have as I've been hearing here wonderful experiences and, uh, and some experiences where they're appearing substantial at this time or appearing at this time inconsequential will I say will stay with you for the rest of your life and it'll be of insightful benefit things which you have heard in these talks things which you've experienced, things which you've had a momentary reflection upon or something that somebody else said in a small uh, uh, group or, uh, or in one of our in inquiry sessions with that palpable silence that goes with some of those periods, something in there, in there, will be the best friend of your life. But what sometimes happens in that extraordinariness of that and in the, in, the, in the insightful things, that in the mystical nature, sometimes we don't realize when we have realized. It's an extraordinary phenomena of spiritual life. We don't realize when we have realized, and it's a day later, a week later, a year later, sometimes 10, 20 years later, since 25 years, since I first, 26 years, since I first came to India, there are things which took place for me 26 years ago, and the insights are just bearing fruit this week. One doesn't know what one is realized until it bears its own preciousness in their own time. But as I say, what can happen in that relationship, in such a dynamic circumstances of life, in the effect of experiences or insights or, or profound heart opening, we tendency is to say, he or she, through him, through her, it happened to me. Transference already. Tragedy has started. One has misplaced authority and in its misplacing of authority introduced into life human thought which says he, often he, too many he's, he is the source, he is the cause and this happened to me because of him. <laughs> Old mind coming into an area where it has no place. So we look at the question, our relationship to authority. Sometimes, in that relationship to authority, and some of you may have, a, I know in fact, of course you have had, you've had some reflections about your past. Sometimes you obviously don't wish to think about the past, but the past wishes you to think about it. <laughs> it's actually more often that way around, I suspect. One of the influences of the past are called mother and father. Sometimes one is more present by the other. By their presence or by their absence, they have an influence upon us. And sometimes, if I may just speak a little personally again here, we go away and then we find that we lose the interest, the motivation to have contact. Oh, we have recollections on this retreat and elsewhere of 
uh, experiences with one's parents where one has been abused, uh, mistreated, violated. And certainly I have um, had many conversations in recent years with people on retreats on this particular issue. And it does seem for some people that the healing of the past is necessary in order to be able to have the opportunity to move more fully into the present. And sometimes that voice of anger, that voice of resentment, which remember is oneself burning, goes towards the mother, goes towards the father, goes towards uh, sometimes other fa family members. And then in that movement away coming to the east, there's a further a uh, absence, a distance of time and space. And that distance of time and space sometimes means a cutting off, a greater distancing from. Please don't think one can distance oneself so easily from one's parents because one's parents are inside of oneself as much as they are outside and that's the truth of it. And sometimes when we are cutting ourselves off from our mother and our father, whether they are dead or whether they are alive, is such that in fact we're cutting off in a deep and significant emotional area of ourselves because they are in as much as they are out. And it's not unusual in the years of coming uh, here to India for people to, be, to have some reflection on this, to have some, to start and to renew. For some people that, who have gone years without any communication, walked out of their front door at home, slamming the door, and were gone to credible despair to parents. Sometimes, as I say, healing and love and understanding as much as it's needed for our earth, as much as it is needed for our people, our friends and uh, people we spend time with and others, it's certainly needed towards the whole of our history as well. To heal time, things of time and things of authority. Could I just give you a little example? I'm not sure if I should be a good example, I don't know. Not, no, may, not a good one, because when I left, sometimes my friends say to me, Christopher, you talk Dharma, you, you always seem to be reluctant to talk about yourself, so I'm trying to make some small contribution in this regard. <laughs> it's going to be as small as I can make it. Um, when I left, and it's well, not so easy these days, but in those days we were able to uh, hitchhike across to here from Europe, and I made a small agreement, not out of any special affection for my um, um, parents, so I've come to love them, that I would um, write a letter or a postcard once every ten days. I thought this was a significant um, effort on my part, I have to say. And part of the reason was because I knew that I wouldn't be back in a hurry. And I wasn't. I um, left in 1967, and I walked into my um, parents' front door exactly 10 years and 10 days later. And, however, apart from a three-month period, I wish to say, apart from a three-month period when I, made, when I was a monk in the monastery, and I made a vow for a hundred-day period, it was, in fact, a vow not to read a word nor write a word in that period of uh, time and I uh, 
forewarned my uh, parents, of course, who really had thought I'd gone completely loopy. Uh, except for that one three-month uh, period, I uh, sustained the regularity of a you know of a ten-day period of ri- writing. During, if I may say, the ten-year period, when I arrived home, my dear mother. I, I'm probably talking this because I Dana gave me a letter from her today. It's probably why it's on my mind. My dear mother said that she had kept. Be warned, because this might happen to you. She, she kept every single letter. And when I got back, in fact, they were all with a rubber band and a shoebox for each year, and there are just over 400 letters there. And I can say with all honesty, plus I sent home lots of diaries and journals, which like other people here keep, and they'd all piled up there over the decade. And I arrived back, if I may say, in 1977, and I haven't moved They're in the cupboard in my room one elastic band since 1977. I haven't found time to open one letter, you know, to open up one letter and have a read of it. During this 16 years, I wrote everything which one would dare write as a son to the parents, and the most interesting experiences I could never write. <laughs> and you will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> usually summarised as sex, drugs and rock and roll. (laughs) So during this period of... um, My mother kept all these letters and the diaries were all tied up and kept there. And she has been leaning on me. I'm giving you this as a warning because your parents may do the same. She has been leaning on me for 16 years to... You know, write about these years. It's a very interesting year as a monk, blah, 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 blah. And she's been putting this out to me three or four times a year. And I think with tremendous uh, uh, resistance, which is a credit to myself, I have uh, resisted agreeing to this uh, there. But I noticed in the last few months I was um, getting weak at the knees. (laughs) (laughs) So again, in our looking at our relationship to authority and the importance of past and mother and father, and I do think, and I think it's a rather a sad thing, that quite often we tend to foist the blame we pass the blame to them. And there is a lot of blame and mud slinging towards our parents for the condition that we are in. Who are our parents going to blame? And I, and I think it's not only the past and the events which have pained us and hurt and troubled us in the past, but equally important, equally more important actually, is the relationship to the past. Is there forgiveness? Is there understanding? Is there kindness? Is there compassion? Is there an appreciation? Is there a wisdom of the situation that our parents have found themselves in and the way that they have lived their life? Are we going to blame them exclusively, etc.? So I do say that the relationship to the past can be, not always, an important, significant influence on our relationship to the present and particularly authority. In this relationship, what is authority of this sense and feeling of authority? Sometimes authority figures in the religious life exceed their authority. I think there are certain criteria for this, both gross and subtle, and I do suggest where in the exploration of life and going deeply into the things of life 
to ask oneself, where is, where, is there excess? Where does that occur? Sometimes that occurs, of course, through power, through uh, money, through control and abuse in, in various forms. Sometimes it comes through divisiveness. And the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, again, to its credit, has acknowledged how serious this can be. So serious, in fact, that if a person, if a monk in this case, or a nun, contributes to make a div making divisions in the spiritual life, schisms, fragmentation of the spiritual life, he or she is severely reprimanded to the point of being thrown out of the order. That's how strict a view uh, that the tradition has said. What that means in, uh, in a more subtle form of that is, as I say, sometimes authority figures in the spiritual life exceed their authority through control. And one of the common forms of control is the demand on the student that he or she, they, must stay exclusively and narrowly within something and not venture outside of it. And what that does, that form of control, that kind of demand which is made upon uh, an individual can significantly inhibit her or his opportunity for an expensive spiritual life. How can one have an expensive spiritual life living in a prison of it? And it's a tragedy to see that situations where people are, say, I've heard many times, like two people came to see me in a, on a retreat uh, last year, and they said, Christopher, if we come and spend days with you and participate in a retreat with you, though we have spent years with our particular teacher, no names mentioned, though we have spent years with our particular teacher, he has said, if you go and sit and do and explore things, or meditate with another teacher, you cannot come back here. I say that view is not uncommon. It's not something that one, one doesn't uh, hardly ever hears. It's not an unusual voice. And what that means is that the person, this Dharma student in this case, has surrendered what mustn't be surrendered, and that's your own authority, your own integrity, your own exploration, and has given it to somebody else, and that somebody else, that authority, is telling you who you should be with. That is an excess of authority. That is taking it too far. And to be cautious and aware and how easily, as some people have said to me over uh, the years of 15 years of teaching, have said to me, you know, Christopher, I've been with this teacher and I've been with that teacher, but I feel if I listen to another spiritual teacher, somehow I'm being disrespectful to him, disrespectful to her. I say, if please, you're being disrespectful to yourself if you narrow your vision of spiritual life. So as I say, to, to be aware of the, of the lines, the, the boundaries of the relationship, what's, what's beneficial, to listen wholeheartedly to the teachers, yes, of course, to listen wholeheartedly to the teachings which take place, yes, of course, but also to listen to oneself and say, is this teacher engaged in a control and an exclusivity? 
because the control and exclusivity in life and narrow-mindedness in life is a cult. It's a cult. And, uh, and the religious life has been cursed with cultism. Cursed with it. It's a tragedy. Big cults, small cults. But tunnel vision is a characteristic, and the characteristic of it, pleasure in it, and condemnation and criticism and judgment and negativity to everything outside of it. That is the characteristic of it. Do we want to enter into that conspiracy? I say, no, 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 never, never, never. Sometimes authority, if I give you, if I may, another personal story, also goes into difficult and, and difficult areas to deal with. And they're not easy. I may give you one example, if I, if I may. Some time ago, I don't want to be too specific, and I think the reasons to you will be obvious. Some time ago, I received a telephone call while on retreat, and the person who telephoned me told me that they were, with some other uh, Dharma friends, acting as attendants to a friend of ours that I have known many years, including uh, from here, in fact, who was dying from AIDS. And they could see in very clear terms that this particular person, this uh, Dharma friend, um, didn't have very long to live and it was probably a matter of days. That the suffering which he was going through, the physical suffering, was just terrible to its degree. The reason for the phone call was to say, say to me that an offer had been made to that person that if he wished to consciously end his life, this person would provide that medication, in, in quotation marks, for that to take place. I received a telephone call from that room asking me what my view of the situation was, what was my perception of it from an ethical standpoint. I would not say, in relating this story to you, that how any supreme of authority on these things, but it's the kind of issues which do arise, which people in my position do have to uh, work with and deal with. I asked uh, a lot of uh, questions, and then I asked to speak to the person who was dying. And that I was told by the people in the room uh, with him, in his apartment, that Unfortunately, he was so uh, weak at that time, it was impossible for, to hear through the uh, telephone. So I asked a number of questions, I received a uh, number of replies, and in the information which I was given, plus the fact that I knew this person, and in reflecting and meditating on that when I uh, telephoned back, felt clear and comfortable myself with the decision that was being made. When I telephoned back again, which was about 11.30 in the morning, I said, uh, I said, could I try again to speak to the person who was dying? 
And they said, what would, might be possible, and perhaps easier, Christopher, would be if you rang back, we'll, you, we'll record the message on the answering machine, and then it can be replayed back to him, and then replayed again so, he, so that he hears what I have to say about the decision that he was in the process of making. So I telephoned back. I left the message on the, I spoke on the answering machine for a number of minutes, both standpoint of my uh, expression, from the standpoint of uh, ultimate truth, and from uh, that situation, and of course the loving kindness and compassion that, that comes out of us easily in such periods. That was 11.30 in the morning. At 8 p.m. that evening, uh, he took the medication and uh, half an hour later was dead. After that period of time, that is the uh, next two or three days over there, I then spoke <coughs> with a, um, a close friend of, of, of mine, and in who is a, uh, in fact, is a, is a lawyer, no, it hadn't a, a to me, and just speaking because we're both mutual friends of this person. And the person said to, said to me, of course, you know, without any, not disagreement, any disagreement at all with the decision that was made, and I do want to stress I was just one voice in the decision-making process, and the primary voice belonged to the person who was dying. He said, of course, from a legal standpoint, all of you involved were, are at risk. You, in fact, could be charged with murder, or manslaughter, or conspiracy to murder. And as I say, sometimes, and that is a, a, a small uh, but significant illustration in, in, in my life, that one's authority and one's experiences of life and all that is implied through ethics, through awareness, through sensitivity, spirituality and realisation also is such that that authority brings its own responsibility. If one is to exercise authority in this world and, and endeavour to behave as a responsible and compassionate human being, one must take whatever the price, the consequences that flow from the decision-making. It goes with that awareness, it goes with that exploration. So let's say now looking at our life, and looking at our relationship to to life. There is an authority which comes, and that authority which comes, one wonders from where, from where does it come? Where does the authority come for a human being to express her or his rights? Her or his statements? Her or his perceptions in the world? What, what, what is the source? Where does that, what does that emerge from? And we are concerned with that emergence as much as we are concerned with the passage of time and tradition and teachers and teachings. Just today, you, some of you who have been walking in the grounds of the monastery here will have noticed, and extremely unusual for the guy, that there's been a clean-up mop-up operation on the street there. In the, having walked out there today and looked at the si situation, the thought ar arose as I looked through and seen in this clean-up in Budgaya that Budgaya has lost its soul. <laughs> and the, apparently the reason for this is that the president of Sri Lanka, 
the Foreign Minister of Sri Lanka, 10 senior government officials, and also a number of ambassadors from the various Buddhist countries are, in, are coming to Budgaya. The President is spending uh, three days here, and there are three purposes in mind. Uh, one, which you may uh, um, know about, that the Sri Lankan uh, government has decided to spend um, 25 million rupees, which is one million dollars, on building a gold-plated gate around the Bodhi tree of the Mahabodhi temple. One million US dollars. It will mean forever and ever that there will have to be guards, of course, there, morning, noon, and night. And it will also, in a way, a kind of ironic twist to life where the, where the symbol of enlightenment, that the Bodhi tree is the symbol of enlightenment, is caged in <laughs> and wrapped up in gold plate. Now, can anything be more ironic than that? Some of us are growing our fingernails. <laughs> and so today, I and part of the other meeting is that, that the Sri Lankan government has agreed to donate to its uh, credit and build a hundred uh, homes on the other side of the monastery but even there, there is some concern amongst some of us, and, and myself here, is that it, what, uh, the information which I have received is that the homes will be rather sophisticated homes, and what that will mean will be some gap between the ho those homes and elsewhere. The very meeting of the ambassadors and the president and senior government officials of this country and the Mahabodhi temple and others will also, I suspect, accelerate the price of the land here as the wealth of these countries, some of it may be applied here. I have written uh, a letter today to the uh, uh, President, Prema Dasa, to the uh, ambassadors and uh, senior government officials who are coming, knowing that they are having a meeting and have asked to attend this meeting based on the authority, if I may say, of coming here every year since 1974, except for uh, one um, long-standing connection with Mary here, who has very much lived here for many years and very well informed, and the fact that three years ago, out of this retreat and through the tremendous efforts of uh, Rick Peterson, we uh, started a, sm a small school in the neighboring uh, fields, one might say, just across the way there, the uh, Pragna Vihar school for the children and the number of children attending that school of 91 children and Ian, uh, the manager, uh, Kirsten and myself and other friends are uh, working to support uh, this school. We will speak about this later on. So as I say, I've written a letter and I say if I'm not allowed to attend this meeting which will include uh, the, the development of Budgaya, then please, I have asked them, please give me the opportunity to speak 
to them for at least five or ten minutes about the situation in Budgaya. Because the reason that I, my concern is that the view will be to build more hotels here, to build more temples here, and to imagine that there will be some kind of trickle-down effect to the people, the poor people. And in the history of international tourism, there has been no known trickle-down effect to the displaced, the underprivileged, the dispossessed, and the landless. They never get any advantage out of it. It's the land owners and the builders and the developers who make the money and not the poor. And I say, if, these, if, if, there, if there is Buddhist values here and right livelihood and uh, the Eightfold Path is to be applied, we have got to start with the poor and start from the bottom upwards. It's the wrong way round. Whether I get this voice in. And my, and my one line is about a million dollar golden gate. I doubt. But nevertheless, so in our situation here, in, in various situations, uh, perhaps I don't have any more or less authority than anybody else to speak on these matters, but I do say, as I said at the beginning of this talk, please listen to your authority. Wisdom and compassion, <coughs> love for others, it brings its own authority. Let's never be shy, let's never be resistant, let's never hold back when we know that justice matters Truth matters, liberation matters, fairness in life matters. To hold back from all that, so I don't have the authority, I'm not in the position, I can't say, or whatever, is to give authority to the politicians, to the corruption in the world, and to the, uh, these uh, exercises in uh, um, uh, influence that go on with these cars arriving. So I say, spiritual life, it, it, it is a fantastic life because what it does, it challenges everything. It looks into everything because it says wisdom and compassion matter. It matters so much and it matters on behalf of all these lovely children that come every day. They don't have a voice. We want to educate those children to have a voice. We want to bring love and awareness and sensitivity so that there is that voice in the world. Then we can speak of a spiritual life. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.